Welcome to episode five of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. This is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church that is intended to be a help for our congregation or whoever is listening as we go through a uh, read the Bible chronologically in a year. Uh, So that's what we're doing on today's program. We don't have any questions. Nobody submitted any questions, so we don't have any questions to answer. But we will summarize next week's readings, which is finishing up the book of Job and starting the book of Exodus. And there is a lot to talk about in those two sections of the scriptures. So we will just get right into it. Um, Beginning with chapters 35 to 42 of Job. As Pastor Ben mentioned last week, Elihu is a little weird in the book of Job. He waits through 30 chapters or so of speeches, and then once everyone is quiet, he speaks up, just sort of out of nowhere. And we're never given an explanation for that, and I think we just need to roll with it. Elihu is bombastic and a little ridiculous. He reads a little bit like a stereotype. You know that... That young man that's absolutely certain that he knows better than everyone around him, even though it's clear to everyone else that he's just immature and a little too impressed with himself, that's that's Elihu. He even says in chapter 36, verse 4, that he has perfect knowledge. In other words, he really does know it all. He reminds me of some people from youth group. (laughs) But even though he lashes out at Job's friends as being ineffective... All that Elihu has to offer are the same arguments that they gave, just rehashed. Job must have sinned at some point because God does not punish the innocent. And Job's hope for a hearing before God is fruitless because he is, God is so great that no human being would be capable of knowing how to challenge him. Elihu's speaking is done after chapter 37 and then he vanishes from the story completely. And then comes Job 38. And in it, we get one of the most amazing things or passages or speeches that we get in the entire Bible. Out of the whirlwind, from the storm, Yahweh speaks with words remarkable enough to be worth quoting directly here. He says, Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Gird your loins like a man that I may ask you and you can inform me. Just so you know, if Yahweh's ever telling you to gird your loins like a man, you're in for something rough. Now, do you remember the really sad speech that Job gave all the way back in chapter 3, where he wished that he was dead or that he'd never been born, and that darkness would just take him? Do you remember that speech? Well, Yahweh does. And in the next two chapters, Yahweh answers Job's first song, Image for Image. Truly, he's giving an answer to Job's complaint. Job wanted darkness without any light, not even starlight. And he wanted even the song that someone sang in joy at his birth to never have happened. And so Yahweh tells us that he makes the morning stars shine and sing together and the angels shout for joy. Job wishes that his mother's womb would have been his tomb and that he would have never been born. And Yahweh tells us of the awesome forces of life and power that come from the womb of creation. The light of Yahweh answers the darkness Job asks for. The nature that Job refers to in his speeches is shown to belong to a master, and that master is addressing Job here and now. Job longs to have never been born. Yahweh sarcastically says that Job is so wise he must have been born before creation itself. 
and then goes on to tell us of the births of the sea and the animals and more. And then in chapter 40, Yahweh turns to address some of the other things Job has said. Job has asked for his day in court, and Yahweh is going to give it to him. Yahweh sort of takes Job on this tour of creation, showing Job its vastness and complexity. And then he asks Job, Do you think you could be me? And Job responds by surrendering to Yahweh entirely. And he says, I had heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes, and I do recant and repent in dust and ashes. And then Yahweh rebukes Job's friends and praises Job. At the beginning of the book, Yahweh addressed Satan, and he called Job his servant, Yahweh's servant. And here at the end, Yahweh does the same thing again. He calls Job his servant. And Job makes sacrifices for the three friends so that they are forgiven for speaking wrongly about the Lord. And then Yahweh blesses Job beyond what he had before. Now when you read this, I want you to wrestle with some things. I want you to remember that the core of Job's complaint is that Yahweh has done these things to him even though he's innocent. And he wants an audience with Yahweh and an answer for why these things have happened. Now here's what I want you to wrestle with. If you were to summarize Yahweh's response, what would you say? Because there isn't a clear-cut answer to Job's question. Job never finds out about the wager with Satan or any reasoning on why he's endured what he's endured. And yet he seems satisfied with Yahweh's response. Why? I think there are a lot of possible answers to this. I'm going to tell you what I think is happening, but I would love it if you sent in other perspectives and we could talk about them next week. But I think that Yahweh can't give Job the answer that Job is looking for. He can't give Job an answer that will make any sense to him. And that's what Yahweh shows him in that tour of creation. Yahweh's perspective is vast, more vast than we humans can imagine. And Yahweh's perspective is detailed, more detailed than we humans can imagine. And so we are not qualified, given the entire cosmos that Yahweh oversees and acts justly within, to judge whether or not Yahweh has acted justly in any individual circumstance we find ourselves in. We just have to decide whether or not we can trust him. And that's what Job's friends have done so wrong. They've made the world small enough that they can understand it, and in so doing, they attributed things to God that are completely wrong. Job realizes his smallness, realizes that he will not be able to understand the world as Yahweh sees it, and he chooses to trust in Yahweh's goodness. You mentioned that uh, Ellie who reminds you of people. Which people specifically? <laughs> I could name names, but uh, I love them and I don't want uh, Fortunately, people like Elihu tend to grow out of that, and mm. that's a good thing. How does one know, you know, so we talked last week that Job, it turns out, is not really about answering the problem of evil itself. It's not really about trying to justify God's justice, you know, his actions. No whatever. answer is given. No yeah. answer is given. And so really it's a pastoral book in terms of both kind of giving people who are grieving or people who are suffering permission to lament honestly uh, and identifying with them, but then also I think offering us as readers <laughs> wisdom through negative portrayals of bad comfort 
bad solidarity, bad compassion, <laughs> compassion, so to speak, or just reactions, you know, bad reactions to somebody else's suffering. And so, or is there a way for Elihu to know that he's Elihu, you know, or, or is that person just so obtuse that they have to just grow up and experience more and then they look back and go, oh man, I was a moron. <laughs> there probably is at least a little of that, right? But the, the, the response to suffering should probably always be compassionate. Now that compassion can take several, several forms. Unfortunately, it's true that one of the forms that compassion can take, and I, I'll explain my unfortunately here in a moment, is truth-telling, right? Mm -hmm. If a person is in a mess of their own making and they're continuing the actions that are making the mess, it is not compassionate to not help them to see that they're in a mess of their own making. The problem is you need to be sure. Right. And you need to do that kindly. Elihu does not do it kindly. Mm -hmm. If the third parties who do not agree with you that hear you do not find you compassionate in your truth-telling, you are doing it badly and doing more harm than good. Because when you tell the truth to someone who's suffering in a way that is not filled with compassion, you make it harder for them to accept it. Mm -hmm. They were more likely to come to the conclusion before you said anything than mm -hmm. they are now that you have. Because if I'm, if, I'm in, if I'm miserable and it's my fault and you tell me cruelly that it's my fault, <laughs> I am in my humanness going to react to that by, by resisting and right. being absolutely certain that it could not be my fault. You know, I think about like interventions, right? So if somebody is destroying themselves, you know, through alcohol and their family and friends intervene and, and have a truth-telling session, but they do that all together. Like, I think that's part yeah. of the power of that. I mean, I've never been part of one yeah. or anything, but my assumption would be that the part of the power of that event is that it's almost your whole or your closest social network all together yeah. agreeing it's, it's rather than just one person mm -hmm. confronting you, you know, that, oh, right. you need to stop drinking. It's also not done in the hospital while you're recovering from the wounds from the car accident. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Job is, is in the midst of the suffering. Even if all four of them are right, this is not the time. Yeah. Um, it's inexcusable. The, I mean, they sit with him for a week. We know that. And we don't know when Elihu shows up. Right. But the, the, the three friends sit with him for a week. And that's admirable. Mm -hmm. And we could see being a little impatient after a week. Mm -hmm. Um and they're almost they're, they they almost seem offended on God's behalf, or they are offended on God's behalf. But the problem there is they feel like God needs them to defend Him, and yes. they are offended by Job questioning their worldview, and their need is to correct Job, not comfort Job. And that is another thing. If you cannot stand people around you saying things that you disagree with in the midst of their suffering then you are one of the friends of Job. Um, sometimes, <laughs> right. Sometimes you're going to be uncomfortable around the people that are suffering. If you take Job's words and you put them in a person you love's mouth, it's hard to listen to. Then you compare their reaction, which is mixed. So yes, seven days sitting in silence, admirable. And then the speeches. Ugh less and less admirable as they continue well and and it's terrible too because job's talking about suicide right and they yell at him right like that my friends <laughs> i've had people tell me they were thinking about suicide 
I've done a lot of reading about it. I've actually taken classes on how to behave in that moment. What you do not do is get into a theological debate <laughs> yelling at them for their misunderstanding about God. That, right. is, that is not what you do. Right. They made Job want to die more, right. not less. Yeah. Well, and, and again, just comparing their reaction to all the people, the community that comes to Job in the end, and everybody gives him money to basically get back on his feet. And they have a big meal. And, you know, I'm sure, I mean, the uh, the epilogue is pretty hurried, you know, mm-hmm. just in terms of like, and then <laughs> they all lived happily ever after, except for the 10 kids who'd already died. Uh, but the <laughs> I was just struck by the, the, the comparison there, you know, of these other friends that show up, these real friends who, who show up. And I'm not saying the other companions weren't real friends. They did sit with him for a week. You know, and so that's it's not a strict black and white, you know, the They're three companions are villains and, and the others aren't. And no, Job himself is not perfect. I mean, we we talked about that last week, too. Uh, his views or his theology does need to be shifted just like theirs does. Anyway, so all that to say, I just was reflecting on, yeah, how do you how do you know if you're an Elihu? You know, and, and again, I think a lot of those themes from last week carry on. You know, the friends never speak again, which is probably wise. <laughs> and Yahweh does not talk to them. No, he does not. <laughs> he talks to Job and he talks about them to Job, imagining that, you know, so like the thunderstorm rolls in <laughs> and then it starts talking to Job, <laughs> but not to you, uh-huh. you know. And I think that they're, what a vindication Oh, yeah. Of Job in the face of, of these four men, you know, or really three, because Yahweh also does not count Elihu. <laughs> Elihu just disappears. <laughs> Part of me wonders if Elihu, like, rode up on a camel, <laughs> said his piece, and then rode off. No, I feel like he was riding by, fit. and he heard <laughs> he, he heard Bildad going off, and he was like, ooh, drama. Ooh. <laughs> That would seem to fit his character a little it bit. Would. If he wasn't even there to listen to what they said. <laughs> and was like, y'all are idiots. Be quiet and let me tell you because uh-huh. I know everything. Uh-huh. Okay, see ya. Looks like it's going to rain. I better go home. I think that storm's about to talk. I'm leaving. Well, he actually talks about storms. I know. Right no, before, I, I mean, it's that's one of the cool. things I was yeah. going to talk about is he starts referencing you know, clouds and thunder and lightning. And, and it's like, like oh. well, because it's coming. He sees it coming. Yeah. Yahweh's rolling in. <laughs> you know, and then one more thing in defense of Job's friends that I need to say is their theology tells them that if Job is suffering, it's because Job has sinned, right? Mm-hmm. And they came. They came to support yeah, their friend that true. they assumed had done something so terrible that they it caused this. this. Yeah. And the and so they were they were there to let him know that once he'd repented He's forgiven, you know, because that was their understanding of grace. Their their lashing out happened when that's not what happened, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's still a, a mighty act of character to believe mm-hmm. that someone has done something so heinous that all these consequences have accrued, and you still go to them. I mean, I think about that, you know, in my role. Of, like, if something really bad happens, well, what do you say? What am I going to say to these people, you know? Because this terrible thing has happened. I'm so sorry. Yes. Well, right. But I think that the, again, the part of the wisdom of the book of Job is just don't worry about that. Say, I'm sorry. And then sit there. Because, again, part of the lesson is, yeah, they did all this admirable stuff. 
but then it was all not necessarily wiped out, but definitely overpowered by their foolish talk. Our words matter. They have potentially dire consequences when spoken wrongly or spoken foolishly. And when people are hurting and suffering, that is like the worst time to be foolish with your tongue. And so don't be. And the best way to not be is just to shut up. (laughs) It's just to keep your mouth shut. I was listening to somebody talking about being a chaplain in a hospital in a line that an older chaplain had told him that then he was passing on to his audience is, you know, don't just do something, stand there. (laughs) And I appreciated that word of like 80, 90% of what you need to do is just to stand there. It's just to be there with them. And yes, it's really awkward, but truly, you know, and I think if we search our hearts, we'll see that this is true. The reason why we want to chatter with people who are grieving or whatever is to make ourselves more comfortable is to relieve the tension within us. Yes. Even though whatever we're feeling pales in comparison to whoever is actually doing the suffering or experiencing the traumas is feeling. It wouldn't be nearly as compelling a story, but it does make you wish there was just one compassionate person in the mix. Like we could interject one person's compassionate dialogue and just see how the story would change well and and maybe that's part of the intention for the reader yeah you know it's it's training us to be that compassionate voice absolutely yeah job is the most sophisticated hebrew poetry in the old testament until you get to yahweh's chapters and then yahweh is the most the author of the book is such a master that he's able to elevate even beyond what he was already doing. And it comes across in the English. I mean, it's it's good. Yeah. What do you think of the um the idea that God isn't answering Job clearly, but what he's trying to communicate is you would not understand an answer if I gave it to you. Mm-hmm. This you have to trust that what I've done is just, but there's no way for me to make sense of that for you. I think on paper that makes a lot of sense. Oh, sure. Hey, I get that. Like, that is that is not what I would say to a person who's suffering, right, sure, asking sure, sure. why. When Job kind of has his moment of repentance at the end, let's see here. It's not that his response was necessarily to anything that God said in particular, but rather just the fact that he has seen a glimpse, you know, yeah. of the creator, right? Because he says, I, I, by the ear's rumor, I heard of you, and now my eye has seen you. Therefore, do I recant and I repent in in ashes and dust. And so, I mean, not to say that he didn't absorb what God said, but that it seems that the, 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 the more deeply meaningful aspect of the experience for Job was the fact that he saw God or that God came. Yeah, Yahweh is the answer to Job's question. You know, which is interesting Mm -hmm. because throughout the whole prior chapters, all Job has wanted is for God to speak. And then when God finally does, it's like Job realizes the speaking is not the thing. It's the presence. (laughs) The presence, which he already had, as Mm -hmm. we talked about last week. The presence is the thing. One of the things we can work toward is having a faith that is not based on my own comfort. Mm -hmm. Because I think that until you're really uncomfortable, you don't know how much of your faith is based on your comfort. This has worked for you to produce comfort up to a certain point, and then that changes. And and now you get to see a little bit of what, what your faith is really based on you may think you know and find out that you're wrong um and the i think in addition to that though as we wrestle with job what we can do is we can prepare ourselves 
for the moment of suffering to not immediately say God is is harming me. God is mm-hmm. is is cruel. God is bad because I'm uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We may we may not be able to to have a, a clear enough vision of Him and a, a right enough grasp of our faith to be able to take any amount of suffering. No human can. Well, there was one, but after him. Um, but I think we can be better prepared or worse prepared based on how much we wrestle with things like Job. Well, and, and to bear in mind that the things that happen to us, there are creatures of chaos in the world. Mm-hmm. Literally, you know, occasionally people get eaten by crocodiles. <laughs> But then there's also atmospheric rivers like California's experienced and tornadoes and cancer cells and God help us artificial intelligence or whatever, nuclear weapons. Like, I mean, there are things in this world that can do great damage. And God, you know, I, I wouldn't say God created nuclear weapons. We did that. But, <laughs> but it's still within the realm of creation. Sure. Even the Satan himself is still a creature mm-hmm. within the realm of creation. And again, Job does not explain how all that fits together but i think part of the actual assurance that i get from reading especially when yahweh describes behemoth and leviathan i think part of why he does that is just to say you know the most dangerous creature on land the most dangerous creature in the sea both of which are creatures like they are known to me and they're mine they're mine and i can catch them if i have to You know, because he talks about hooking both of them, you know, and so it's like these things are. Well, he actually challenges Job to do it. Well, that's true. (laughs) Well, and again, what's hard about that is there's no assurance that when Leviathan comes to get you, Yahweh will catch him (laughs) because he didn't for Job. Right. Right. In fact, he sicked Leviathan on Job. Right. So, I mean, there's it's not it's not a comfort, but I think it is a a perspective, you know, because, again, part of these speeches throughout is just so much of the universe has nothing directly to do with us. You know, that animals way out in the wilderness are taken care of and watched over by God, that the stars and the heavenly beings and whatever else are all doing their thing. And I mean, even just think of it from purely astronomical vantage point, billions and billions and billions of miles of stars and planets and rocks and comets and nebula that has nothing to all we can do is look at it we can't even go there yet maybe never you know but just that it just is there Mm -hmm. for us to look at to declare the the glory of god you know and it has nothing to do with us or just how much of our own planet has nothing to do with us and i think that well he even makes that point right right. i make it rain where there's no right where there's no humans you know so it's like it's you so humans and job is not denying I think the the image of God being humanity or that humanity is the the crowning achievement of the creation. But just to say that, that does not mean that it's all about us, that there are other creatures and and systems and, and ecologies that he's looking after as well. And, you know, I think that sometimes when a tragedy happens, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to go after anyone in their grief or say that you shouldn't say this, but just that I think a common a common reaction is, you know, so you you lose a loved one and then the next day the world just carries on. Yeah. And there is a sense of like, which I think is right. You know, like there's a sense of like, everybody should be sad, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and I felt that, you know, I mean, I haven't had anyone super close to me die yet in my life, but that will, those days will come. Uh, but then I wonder, like, in some ways, it's sort of a weird comfort. Of like the world is a big place 
and it's okay. Like the the bad thing that happens to me is bad. Like yes. and we're not denying that, but that evil doesn't I mean, have the last say. Evil does not have the last say. Let me put it like this: a human, the maximum amount of evil that a single human can experience cannot extinguish the immense goodness of the creation. Yeah. Let me put it like that. Yeah. That can feel bad when it's happening oh, to yeah. you and everyone else Feels is bad not, for Job. you know, is not crying and mourning and it, you know, but there's actually some comfort there of like, this thing is too big for the devil to wreck. Um, several of the church fathers, early church fathers that talk about Job, they talk about him as a like avatar of victory and spiritual warfare hmm. over the evil one. Okay. And that the biggest need for God to speak was to, to keep him humble because of the victory that he won over Satan. Satan was not able to make him sin against God, which was his goal, yeah. his stated goal at the beginning. That's true. And then they see all of us as living the Job story, either well or badly, that mm. all of us are in the state of being attacked spiritually. Mm-hmm. And the calling we have is to not sin against the Lord in the midst of the, the, the fight. Hmm. I was curious for your perspective on that. Do you think that... Do you, do you think we should identify with Job as far as spiritual warfare goes? I mean, one of the things I have been thinking about as we've read Job is how Job is a a prefiguring of Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, that certainly an innocent sufferer, uh, an innocent sufferer who can then intercede for the wicked, which we see happen at, at the, the end, end when he's able mm-hmm. to, to pray for his friends. Someone who recognized a need for an intercessor and then got to be one. Yeah, yeah that's kind of cool. But even with the, and I think the very the first episode we talked about, Job, you made the point, and I think it's a good one, and you're right, that even though we're given this window into the celestial council, you know, Satan doesn't appear in the book again, at least by name. I mean, I, I think it is kind of an open, something I'd want to look into more is just what the connection there is between Satan and Leviathan and, and you know, just the whole, like, uh, evil reptile monster motif that we see, sure. you know, throughout the Bible. He he breathes fire. In he does God's breathe speech. fire. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So I mean, he is a fire breathing dragon, literally. You know, and so a fire breathing dragon crocodile in the water. Yeah. And so you know, I I also had kind of flashes of revelation there as well with the beast and and or the dragon rather. And anyway, so there's something there. Uh. But I don't want to I don't want to push that too far before I've looked into it more. Anyway, but even just the idea of like, and we see this kind of hinted in the New Testament as well with, with the Christ, Christus, Christus Victor, like the victorious Christ view of the atonement, uh, meaning that Jesus conquered mm-hmm. over the evil one, that that's what was happening on the cross. And, and I think we see that in Paul a lot. Uh, and also in the Gospels, you know, when J- Jesus talks about the prince yes. of this world is coming and, and those sorts of things. That the church fathers, I think specifically Augustine, at least is the one I'm most familiar with, kind of developed this idea of like the bait, <laughs> that Jesus was the bait, you know. So he's the one on the hook, too bad for him. But the real <laughs> victim, not too bad for him, but just, you know, the, the, <laughs> Jesus was a willing worm. <laughs> uh-huh. He and the father went fishing, you know, and yes, Jesus is on the hook, but the real victim is the fish. Like the yeah. real victim is the devil or the power sure. of sin that they're baiting. And I wonder if some of that is certainly in a in a more or a less uh, 
developed form is kind of floating in the background of that prologue. Like mm-hmm. God is baiting because God is the one who initiates. Yeah, he does. He, says, he baits. Have Satan. you considered my servant Job? You know, and I think we sit back. We go, what are you doing? <laughs> God, why? <laughs> if you if God had just kept his mouth shut, then none of this would have happened anyway. And so so God initiates it like he mm-hmm. he he baits the devil. Now, we're not really given a an explicit conclusion to that here you know but again i just wonder if as christian readers of this we we look forward and we go okay you know job you know that just this pattern is is established here of like god baiting the powers of evil with an innocent sufferer and then triumphing over them because they can't again it's and it's the theme we've got because they just can't destroy they can't destroy it. the goodness of creation okay so we have the epilogue Job we lives do have the epilogue. basically happily ever after. And he uh, has seven more sons and three more daughters. And this is in, where are we? Chapter 42, I think, verse 13. Mm-hmm. And he called the name of the first one Dove, mm-hmm. and the name of the second Cinnamon, and the name mm-hmm. of the third Horn of Eye Shade, meaning like a uh, little bottle of makeup. <laughs> And there were no women in the land so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an estate among their brothers. And Job lived such and such, and then he died. I really, I have a little short bit from a book that I wanted to read. And then you can, we sure. can talk about it. Is that all right? Just like 40 seconds. So this is a little bit What's on, the book? it's called Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering Ooh. the Old Testament by Alan Davis, who's a uh, been a prominent Old Testament scholar for a number of years. I think from Harvard, Duke Divinity School, sorry. So she says, The clearest expression of the renewal of Job's mind is not anything he says. It is his willingness to have more children. I have heard it said in modern Israel that the most courageous act of faith the Jews have ever performed was to have babies after the Holocaust, Mm. to trust God with more defenseless children. The note at the end of the book that Job had seven sons and three daughters is often considered to be a cheap parting shot, as though God could make it all up by giving Job another set of children to replace the ones who were lost. But that is to judge the last scene of the book from the wrong side. This book is not about justifying God's actions. It is about Job's transformation. It is useless to ask how much or how little it costs God to give more children. The real question is how much it costs Job to become a father again. How can he open himself again to the terrible vulnerability of loving those whom he cannot protect against suffering and untimely death? Of course, we never get a direct answer to that question. But here is a hint that tells us something about what kind of father Job becomes, after all his grief. It is in the strange detail about him naming his daughters. He called the name of the one Yamima Dove, and the name of the second Ketzia Cinnamon, and the name of the third Karen Hapuch horn of eyeshadow. Sensuous names are not the biblical norm, and naming a daughter for a cosmetic is way over the top. But there is more. And there were not to be found throughout the whole land women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance alongside their brothers. In the male-dominated societies of the ancient world, it is an affront for a father blessed with many sons to leave anything to daughters. So once cautious Job is now overturning all the rules, And as for a reason, well, the only thing we know is that Dove, Cinnamon, and Horn of Eyeshadow were exceptionally pretty women. Which is to say, Job does it for no good reason at all. He does it just for kicks. 
The two portraits of Father Job that stand at either end of this book mark the true measure of his transformation. Hmm. Job, this man of integrity who was once so careful, fearful of God, and of the possible sins of his children, becomes at the last freewheeling, breaking with custom to honor daughters alongside sons, bestowing inheritances and snappy names. The inspiration and model for this wild style of parenting is, of course, God the Creator. Job learned about it when God spoke out of the whirlwind. And now Job loves with the abandon characteristic of God's love, revolutionary in seeking our freedom, reveling in the untamed beauty of every child. You disagree? I, with with very small part of it. <laughs> Which Can part? I? Sure. So the, the, now she is a better red scholar than I, and so, but the, the, the way that it seems like Job's daughters getting inheritance makes the most sense to me is that it's a statement of how much abundance Job, ha- Job has. Mm. That he has so much that he can give even his daughters inheritance and his sons do not complain because of how many incredible riches um, mm. he has. Um, I, I suspect, given the time, that it would be bizarre to end Job with a scandal like giving his daughters an inheritance just because... Like, if it's not commenting on the blessing God has given him, then I don't know that it, it makes sense to me. All right, the book of Exodus. Questions in Exodus. Questions in Exodus. Hit us with a summary, Pastor Clayton. So the book of Exodus, in our Bibles, as they are, is the second book. It comes right after Genesis. It is the third book in our chronological reading. But uh, Genesis ends with Joseph's death, and the family of Israel is in Egypt. Exodus picks up right where Genesis left off, so much so that in Hebrew, the first word in Exodus is the word and, meaning it literally picks up right where Genesis left off. And we're told that Israel, who we knew as Jacob and became Israel, Israel's descendants have been fruitful in Egypt. And then a new Pharaoh sees the Israelites as a threat and decides to make them into slaves. But the fruitfulness of the Israelites continued, and so the Pharaoh tries to have all the boys born to Hebrew women killed. However, a Hebrew woman is able to hide her baby for three months and then send him in a little ark on the Nile. This is an origin story. He is found by Pharaoh's daughter and eventually taken in and raised as her son. When he is grown, we find out his name is Moses. Moses sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite and kills him. Later, when he sees two Hebrews fighting, he's given reason to believe that Pharaoh will soon know what he had done, killing the Egyptian, and he flees to Midian, which is this region that's difficult to pin down because it was populated by nomads, but it was several dozen miles away from um, where he had been. Then Moses meets his wife, Zipporah, by protecting her from some shepherds. He's taken to meet her father, Jethro, And Moses stays with them and becomes a shepherd. And it is in this role as a shepherd that Moses encounters Yahweh, who speaks to him from a bush that is on fire but does not burn up. Yahweh tells Moses that he has heard his people's sufferings, and he calls him to return to Egypt to get them and to bring them to this mountain. But Moses resists. And so Yahweh gives Moses a series of signs to prove that he comes in Yahweh's name, to prove that he speaks with Yahweh's authority. 
But that's not enough for Moses, who seems pretty bold in his desperation to not be the one to go, as though he's just coming up with excuses to get out of it. He is, after all, we think 80 years old here. And in the end, Yahweh agrees to send Moses' brother, Aaron, as well. And Yahweh lets Moses know that he's going to strengthen Pharaoh's heart so that when they go to him and ask him to let the Israelites go, Pharaoh will not relent. And so with that happy news, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and have something like a weigh-in before a boxing match. They ask for their people to be allowed to leave and to worship Yahweh at the mountain. Pharaoh refuses, and then the boxing match begins. A series of signs happen going back and forth between Pharaoh's magicians and Moses, or Yahweh. It's a series of rounds, or a repeating cycle. And then it, it goes like this. After the first one, it goes like this. Yahweh sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, and they ask him to release the Israelites to go and worship. And Pharaoh says no, and then Yahweh sends a plague. They check back in, Pharaoh kind of deceives them, and then two more plagues come. And this happens three times, nine plagues, three times. And there's just so much happening in the plagues that I want to encourage you to, to that I want to encourage you to know or to watch for. First, when you're when you're reading about the plagues, watch Pharaoh's reactions. The first several times his heart is hardened or strengthened, Pharaoh does it. So the first several times when scripture talks about the, the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart, it's done by Pharaoh, not by Yahweh. But then in the second half of the plagues, Yahweh starts strengthening or hardening Pharaoh's heart. Most of the plagues are, another thing I want you to notice is that most of the plagues are pretty directly linked with objects of worship in the Egyptian religion. Most of the plagues are connected to the Egyptian gods. The Nile, the sun, Pharaoh himself were all, all worshipped by the Egyptians. This is a boxing match, a fight between Yahweh and the gods of the most powerful nation on earth. And the victory is completely and totally one-sided. And in fact, this fight is the reason we are told for the, the signs and wonders and for the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart so that Yahweh's name will be known. He's creating a story here that will be a boon and a blessing to the Israelites for the rest of their history. The next thing I want you to notice with the plagues are the magicians. Pharaoh has some magicians who are able to mimic the first few miraculous acts just in a smaller capacity, but they are never able to undo them. In fact, when, when Pharaoh turns to them and asks for them to, to respond to Moses causing a plague in Pharaoh's eyes, they're able to mimic it in a small scale, but they're never able to turn it off or cure it. But eventually, they just fade away, miserable from boils, and we never hear from them again. And so the first nine plagues go this way. We're not going to go through them one at a time. You will read about them. But then comes the end of our section today. Exodus 12, the 10th plague. It begins with instructions for what becomes the festival of unleavened bread and then the Passover. The most important part being to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of Israelite homes. Moses tells the people that they are to do this and the tenth plague will pass them by. And then at midnight, the firstborn of every family and every animal who was not protected by the blood of the lamb was killed. And this was too much for Pharaoh, and finally he lets the Israelites go. Now, this is 
the beginning of Exodus. And this story has so many amazing themes and connections in it, apart from what I talked about with the plagues, things to look for. And I want to give you a few more of them. Exodus does a lot of callbacks to Genesis. Uh, there's an arc, mm -hmm. like there is in, in Genesis. There's brother violence at the beginning, like there is at the beginning of Genesis. Moses meeting his wife echoes the story of Isaac's wife and Jacob's wife being mm -hmm. found as mm -hmm. well. We are being told something about Moses here that's very important. There's also, interestingly, twin themes of water and blood that run all the way through the book of Exodus. They show up over and over and over again. I think it's interesting to ask what's happening there. And then I think another important theme here is submission. A recognition of who God is and the expectation he has for submission to him. And I think that that theme runs through here as well. Moses is expected to submit and bad things happen when he doesn't. And then, of course, um, the, the Egyptians are expected to submit and bad things happen when they don't. And so this is the first 12 chapters of Exodus. So at the beginning, there are these midwives, Shifra and Pua, who Pharaoh instructs to kill the baby boys and let the little girls live. They don't do that, and then when they're interrogated about it, they lie. Uh-huh. And then they appear to be rewarded yes. for that deception. And I just wanted you to speak to that a little bit about why Yahweh rewards them for sure. lying. The <laughs> the uh, the primary testimony of the church for two thousand years has been that lying when it's done for the sake of the greater good, and that greater good is not your own comfort or getting out of trouble is not a bad thing. If you are lying to save the life of someone, then lying is the right thing to do. Um, if you are a German in, in World War II hiding Jews in your basement and the Nazis knock on the door and ask if there are Jews in your basement, saying yes because God wants you to be honest is, is wrong and bad. You are to lie in that situation. The, the retort for that is, well, can you imagine Jesus lying? And the answer is no, but Jesus could also protect whoever he needed to protect without needing to do that. Um, we're, we are to, when it serves the greater good, we are to lie. Fortunately, we live lives where that kind of thing just really doesn't happen. Again, going back to the whole baiting the devil, I think that there is a certain amount of... Uh... Maybe not lying, but certainly, you know, he Trickery. made him to be sin. Oh, yeah. He knew no sin. Like there's some kind of a divine slide. God pulls a bait happening. and switch. Yeah. So I would say that even in, in that way, that the Lord does it himself. Are you saying <laughs> with that, Jesus that God is a con us? man? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the devil? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> he outcons the devil. Well, because in part of why I wanted to bring that up is it keeps happening. Like Moses over and Aaron and over represent to Pharaoh that they just want to go a three days journey into the the desert to have a festival but that's, that's not, not the what case. they're really asking you know and so it's just like this this uh redeemed deception <laughs> well and pharaoh knows it. that that's not all they want yeah. and that's one of the reasons why he doesn't want to give it to them well and that could be and so maybe there's a it's there's some kind of a bargaining almost dynamic maybe that, mm -hmm. that we don't detect as much because we don't do that very much in our culture i think it's also worth pointing out you know that, that these midwives are named and Pharaoh isn't, you know, we're never given which Pharaoh it is. And I, I read that as being pretty significant. 
they're heroes. One, because, well, yeah, they're heroes, but also there are just so few women that are actually named in the Bible. I mean, Job's wife, no name, you know, as mm-hmm. we talked about last. Or in, yeah, in but Job. Job's daughters got names and his sons That's didn't. That's true. That's true. No, well, exactly right. Exactly. So, and so I think that there's an, there's an acknowledgement here that, yes, the midwives are heroes. And I think to even bring a sharper point to your comment on lying to save life, it's like when it's the state the power of the state or the power, you know, oppressive powers coming in and trying to kill people or mis- mistreat them. Well, then absolutely the godly thing to do is to deceive yes. them, you know. And so I think about, I mean, you know, <laughs> this is not a politics podcast. So, <laughs> I know exactly where you're like, going. Like you just think about the churches that harbor illegal immigrants mm-hmm. or things like that. It's like I think whatever our politics are, I think we can't disagree that if people come and ask for help and shelter the godly thing to do is to give them help and shelter. Yes, I agree. Even if they're in this country illegally. Not that, you know, our Border Patrol folks want to do harm to people. That's not what I'm trying to say. But And so Moses sees this burning bush and he has this interaction yeah. with the God of his fathers. And it begins with Yahweh telling him to take his sandals off for the place that you are standing on is holy ground. And what's the, Ooh. like, what's going on there? With the it being holy ground, and but that means he has to take his shoes off. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, so, because we haven't had, we haven't seen holy a lot. Not yet. Yet it's coming. It's it's been it's popped. The Sabbath is made holy. Off the top of my head, I can't. I mean, I think there are other holy references to holiness in Genesis. So I can't think of them. <laughs> so there just hasn't been very many. Mm-hmm. And then here it is again. You know, yes, but as a concept, it's already present. Like sure, special sure. places, times, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, even with the plagues, the uh, uh, Go- land of Goshen, where the Israelites are, yeah, yeah. is is holy. It's kept from the, the plagues. Mm. Um, but what's happening is Moses is in the presence of his God. And that is a way of communicating to Moses that this is a special, this is a special moment with a special person. And the taking off of shoes is um, there's some of that still in our culture. I think probably because of this story, right? The, the, the idea of um, the dirty thing that you have walked all over the ground with um, soiling an important place mm. is not what is ideal if that place is precious and special. Um, the dirtiest thing on Moses's body were his sandals. Mm-hmm. And he was told to put them out because... The dirtiest thing on his body did not belong in proximity to God. And that I think it's that introduction to holiness. And Moses seems to be familiar with the concept. He doesn't ask why. He right. just Now, if you have a burning bush and Yahweh speaks to you and tells you to do something like um, clip all your fingernails before you come nearer, just do it. Don't, don't fight him on it. But uh, uh, it doesn't seem like Moses is unfamiliar with the concept. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was around. Mm-hmm. We just haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's any sense of like a like a hospitality piece here or like a welcome? It's like I'm not disagreeing with the the corruption or the impurity, but just think about other times. Like I feel like the, the other well, pre, <laughs> later in Exodus, there's no description of any footwear for the high priest or priest. So I think we're taken given to believe that they might be barefoot as well which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then I feel like the next time we really are focusing on like feet and shoes is like Jesus washing the disciples feet. Yes, and I'm but, not necessarily drawing like, you know, there's a strong yeah. line there, but just this idea, you know, so you think about like Eastern cultures, 
part of why you take your shoes off is because that's what guests that's what you have your guests do so like you can fully welcome them into your home Mm -hmm. you know certainly to to leave the filth of the street at the door but but part of that is to welcome them into your home that may be i don't know that's never the way i've read the story but i don't see i think there's probably there could be something to that Hmm. i've always read this as the precursor to the levitical laws about um, I mean, wildly oversimplified, really gross things not belonging in Yahweh's presence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. I, I'm not disputing that just to say that I wonder if that with that is the, I mean, the whole point of why there are laws at all is because people are being welcomed into his presence. Yes, you you're know, right. need to be made ready or need to be, you know. Yeah, it's not like a that. test he's passing, but an invitation. Mm. Yeah, you're coming somewhere special that's welcoming and good. You should not. You do not need to wear that thing in here. Yeah, I could see that. Well, so then they have this interaction, and something very important happens. It uh, does. Several very important things happen, but we get the kind of formal revelation of the Creator's name. Yeah. Oh boy. In verse fourteen, mm. and I would like you to speak to what it is he says to Moses. And just the significance of that. And we talked a little bit, I think, in our very first episode about, you know, the fact that we use the name Yahweh uh, and that when you see Lord in all, in all capitals in your Bibles, that is the, the Hebrew Yahweh. We just translate it as Lord out of reverence and respect and just to kind of keep with tradition. But yeah, could you just kind of speak to what that what the name is, what it means? Yeah, so um, Hebrew is funny with the to be verb, right? So in English, um, we have the verb to be, right? And it, it's it's weird. I mean, you don't think about it being weird because we use it all the time. But the past tense of to be doesn't doesn't sound like it. You know, was mm-hmm. is it's completely different. But but to be fits into all these different tenses. We can talk about something being in any time or state. Okay. Um, Hebrew is a little funny. Not there's there's some tenses where the to be verb doesn't fit. And this is the to be verb put into a tense it doesn't fit in. Mm. It's a weird word. Moses would not have heard this and been like, yes, I used that word 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Like this is a this is a weird word. And it means something like um, I am or I will be who I will be or I am the one who is and will be. I, I there's there's a there's something like that happening here. There's. He's, he's taking on the idea of being to mm-hmm. himself in a unique way. Mm. In other words, Yahweh is communicating something to Moses. And I think what he's communicating is, I am the, the base of existence. I am the, I am the is that everything else relies on. Um, and again, it doesn't fit. And even as we're talking about it, it's hard to say mm-hmm. like what, what that would be. But Moses is getting an idea of, holy cow, this isn't just a god, mm-hmm. right? This isn't a, a a god like the Egyptians have gods, gods that right. he would be familiar with. This is something more. And I mean, he he was an Israelite. We don't know how much knowledge about his people's religion he had at this point. We just mm-hmm. don't know. Um, but I imagine he knew something about the god of his ancestors being um, special. And that is what he's realizing is he's he's standing before the god of existence, right now. And again, I wish, man, there's been so much written about this and I've read really <laughs> compelling arguments. Um, we, we say Yahweh because we, most of the, or so many of the names um, later on have 
parts of the name of God attached to them, right? People's names do that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we, we think we have some confidence about how the vowels are supposed to go. But there aren't vowels here. And so the I'm trying to remember what the alternative, the next light most likely, it's like um, yeah, like the like an <laughs> I instead of an A okay. is also possible. But that would change the meaning a little bit. Um, as it is, it means something like I am the God of existence. So something very strange happens as the family is on the way back. to <laughs> So I want to talk about the 10 plagues, um, for a minute. Uh, and, and this uh, is one of those strange things that is often ignored. Uh, yeah. And I want to talk about it. I know you do. Okay. So Exodus chapter four, verse 24. This is the weirdest story in Exodus. And By, it, it happened, might be the weirdest story in the Pentateuch. And it happened on the way at the night camp mm-hmm. that Yahweh encountered him and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it to his feet. And she said, yes, a bridegroom of blood you are to me. And he let him go. Then did she say, a bridegroom of blood by the circumcising. Yep. What, What's uh, the question? What the heck's going on, Clayton? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it is such a weird story. There are a lot of proposed explanations, and all of them are floundering in the dark. Here's the thing that stinks about this, is that... Is all that of them are floundering When we find a story like this, I am confident that something important is happening in the stories we can't make sense of. And there are a couple of ideas that I think um, is is are, are, are better or worse. I'll tell you what I think is going on. But one Please. of the things I worry about is that when people hear a pastor give an opinion on a story like this, mm. they'll say, oh, that's what I'm supposed what to think. Yeah. And, and I don't know because it is a weird story. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that has happened is Yahweh has told Moses that he can return to Egypt, that everyone who wanted to kill him is is gone. Mm-hmm. And so... <laughs> except for Yahweh. Except for Yahweh. <laughs> <laughs> that, and, and so it seems like perhaps what has happened is in a legal sense, like the statute of limitations for the crime in Egypt has passed. Yeah. Moses can safely return. However, there's still this blood guilt mm. on him. And so... The uh, uh, the circumcision seems to be a a way of of like atoning for that blood guilt. Um, you take the foreskin of an innocent, you apply it to the feet, and that has some kind of cleansing power. Why Zipporah didn't wake Moses? Why Moses didn't just have a chat with God? Why? Why, when God was coming, the first thing she thought to do was to circumcise her son and put the foreskin to Moses' feet. I do not know, um, but the best sense, the best explanation I've ever heard is that this had some way of forgiving the blood guilt Moses carried for the murder he committed Mm. when he left Egypt. That Yahweh had said, you are safe to return, but there's still this one thing. And there's problems with this view. Yeah. But there's problems with all of them. Right. Nothing, and so, nothing fits completely. You know, so the last line of the story before is he's t- God is sending them and saying, uh, this is what you should say to Pharaoh. This is in verse 22 and 23. Thus said the Lord, my son, my firstborn is Israel. And I said to you, send off my son that he may worship me. And you refuse to send him off. And look, I am about to kill your son, your firstborn. So like son is repeated over and over and over. And then Yahweh comes 
And so Zipporah's instinct is, you know, this is something to do with our firstborn son. I don't know. And there is. There's a lot of puzzles here. Yeah, there's because a lot it of works. Ambiguity. Like, and because it does that work. doesn't seem like that should and make so sense. And so I wonder if, too, there's the sense of that the Israelites are not, they are exempt from the judgment that's coming because of, of Yahweh's faithfulness to them, not because they're special people. Does that make sense? Like Moses, Moses' family itself is not exempt from Yahweh's justice mm-hmm. or Yahweh's wrath because he's chosen or because he's special or because he's a Superman. He's not. So I think that, and I think that kind of is is the idea behind both of those theories, whether it's about the murder or whether it's about them not circumcising Gershom. Like that there's something to be said for, you know, this, this terrible judgment that's going to befall Egypt could have befallen and in fact, will in some measure befall Israel in the future sure. because of the the wickedness of the kings and everything yeah. else. It's like it's not that oh God's favorite people don't get this punishment because they're special somehow, and the Egyptians are not. No, it's because like, no, they're it's obedient. They're obedient. God, well, and really that God is faithful to the covenant He made with Abraham. And this is how you opt in. You know, right? And that it's not that others can't, couldn't be part of that. You know, sure. we don't know. Over in chapter 12, did any Egyptians put blood on their doorposts? Who knows? Maybe they did. With the the plague on the livestock, it seems like there were Egyptians who brought their livestock in because they heeded the the warning. You know, so I think there is this idea of like, it's not that God is just punishing the Egyptians and saving the Israelites. Some of these Egyptians can join in the saving if they will obey, but also the Israelites can incur wrath if they don't. Uh So I think that... I think we can at least say that that is what's happening with this weird little ghost story here in Exodus <laughs> 4. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, there's more good stuff here. I know. We could, but... we could, to not talk more about the plagues is killing me, but we can't. All right. Well, there's a lot that we're just not going to really touch in the rest of this passage of Texas 12, not because we don't want to, but just for the sake of time. And so as you're reading it, as you ask questions and comments, send those in. We would love to uh, to talk about it, I'll cheat a little bit and talk about some of these things at the start of next week's episode. But I think uh, I think that's probably good for this week. I agree. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. And this is just an aside, is I think Job's wife has now had 20 children. <laughs> and she's not uh, she's not spoken of. Now, she went she had a bad moment. And she, in Job chapter 43, again told Job to curse God and die. (laughs) When he wanted child number 11, well, 21, she said, uh, absolutely not.